You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning. My name is Lise Grande, and I am the President and CEO of the United States Institute of Peace. USIP is a public institution established by Congress in 1984 to work with partners around the world to prevent and help resolve violent conflict abroad. The Institute is delighted to welcome everyone this morning to a conversation with His Excellency, Dr. Mureed Youssef, Pakistan's National Security Advisor. As U.S. troops withdraw from Afghanistan and violence escalates, everyone in the region and everyone involved in Afghanistan is faced with new realities. For Pakistan most particularly, the future of their relationship with Afghanistan and with the Taliban is of the utmost importance. Beyond Afghanistan, Pakistan, China, and India, all nuclear-armed countries, create one of the world's most dangerous strategic stability environments. As partnerships between the U.S. and India the U.S. and Pakistan, China and India, China and Pakistan, as they evolve, this set of relationships becomes more complex and arguably the region as well. There are many positive opportunities on the horizon that both Pakistan and the United States can seize, including economic cooperation, shared democratic commitments, trade, and cultural exchange. We are honored to have His Excellency, Dr. Yusuf, here to discuss how Pakistan is approaching these and other issues. Dr. Yusuf, we're honored to welcome you back to the Thank Institute. We're also delighted that Ambassador Richard Olson will be moderating our conversation. Ambassador Olson is the former U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan and the former Ambassador to Pakistan. Ambassador Olson is now a senior advisor for the Institute's Asia Center. Pakistan has been a central focus of the Institute's Asia program for the past 10 years, and we have been present and active in Pakistan since 2013. We invite our virtual audience to submit your questions via the chat function on our website and to engage with us on Twitter using the hashtag USIPPakistan. Ambassador Olson. Over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Lise. And uh, let me offer uh, to you, Dr. Yusuf, uh, my warm welcome back to back to USIP. It's a real pleasure to uh, have you have you back here at the institute. Uh, I'm going to jump right into a few questions, um, if I may. Uh, but I do want to remind the audience that um, if you have questions, please submit them through our website, and we will have. Uh, a Q&A session with uh, Dr. Yusuf at the end of the, uh, of the session. Um, so, uh, Dr. Yusuf Mouid, you're here on a trip uh, to visit uh, with senior U.S. government uh, officials. Um, I wonder if you can give us a sense of the objectives of your, of your visit and whether they were uh, achieved and what you see as the future of the U.S. Pakistan relationship and whether cooperation um, is on the cards. Thank you. Um, thank you, Rick. Please call me Moeed throughout. I'm uncomfortable <laughs> otherwise. 
Let me first thank um, Lise, Andrew, uh, USIP. This is homecoming in the true sense. I haven't been back uh, since I left uh, for Pakistan and took up this position. I was glad to see old colleagues and friends in a place that remains and will remain very near and dear to me. So, Rick, this trip um, is essentially a continuation of the Pakistan-US engagement that we've been having. Um, in May, uh, the, United, uh, the US National Security Advisor and myself, we met in Geneva. It was the first high-level physical contact with the new administration. Um, where we discussed how a uh, broad-based holistic relationship should move forward. Certain very specific decisions were taken. Um, one, that we will cover the entire gamut of the relationship. It will not be issue-based. Uh, we do not want the relationship uh, on both sides to be from any third lens, Afghanistan, China, India, whatever. Uh, and also um, that we should have um, set goals and timelines on how we move forward. The important point to note is that we are in total agreement that we want to focus on substance, first of all, achieve things, and uh, optics can then be attached to that. And that's why people have not been hearing too much about it. I've had these questions even in this town. Why don't we know? Well, because we're very focused on substance, but you know, there's progress on things like climate change. The US was very gracious in providing Pakistan support on, on COVID uh, and the vaccines, um, energy. Uh, of course, Afghanistan is the urgent and the immediate, and I know you won't let me go without spending some time on it, so we'll come, come to that. Um, this, um, the meeting I had with my counterpart was a follow-up, essentially to see where we are, take stock, what is, you know, where we need to change how things are going and where things are okay. I have to say it was um, a very uh, fruitful trip. Um, we were well received. I was personally very well received, but I think we were well received. I also had um, a senior uh, colleague from the uh, uh, security side with me uh, because we had to have uh, conversations on, on uh, the security relationship as well. Um, positive, constructive, realistic, and that's exactly how we should be moving forward. So I'm actually uh, going back uh, today uh, very happy with the progress. Uh, I have to say uh, there's a very concerted effort that I see by the U.S. administration to move this forward and the commitment to the relationship. Uh, and that's what we came here to, to affirm, apart from discussing you know, the urgent uh, issues of Afghanistan and, uh, and the rest. So it's, it's been, uh, I think it's been a good, candid, not when diplomats say candid, it means bad, really candid, good, focused conversations on how we move forward, and that's exactly what we want. Well, that sounds like a, a very broad uh, agenda, and I think we'll want to try to cover some of those uh, points during the discussion. But I do want to, uh, not surprisingly, as you as you suggested, jump into the urgent uh, sure. at the beginning and talk a bit about uh, Afghanistan. Uh, you may have seen that the UN Security Council issued a statement earlier this week uh, uh, saying essentially that there should not be a return of the Emirate uh, and uh, calling for uh, a, well, issuing uh, a, a violent takeover. Um, and I think that, uh, especially the latter point, largely uh, accords with Pakistan's position. Pakistan, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, does not favor uh, a violent takeover uh, uh, in the current circumstances. But 
the uh, military situation um, is difficult, it's fluid, and the Taliban seems to have uh, some advantage. So does, does Pakistan have a view on how a military takeover can be prevented? Um, Rick, Pakistan's first view is that peace in Afghanistan is non-negotiable for us. And this is not a sort of statement for, you know, um, for the gallery. It's an existential issue for us if Afghanistan goes through protracted conflict and instability and continues to do so. Afghans have suffered more than anybody in the past four decades. Uh, they deserve peace, this goes without saying. But I think the sentence is incomplete till I also emphasize that Pakistan has suffered for four decades. A war next door has spilt over, had uh, created serious societal distortions. Uh, you know that Pakistan still hosts over three million Afghan refugees at a time when, you know, even uh, many of the Western countries have taken very strong uh, nationalistic positions on this. Um, we don't, uh, we treat Afghan refugees like anybody else. 70% um, of them work and live across Pakistan. Um, if there is protracted conflict, we fear, and some argue it's inevitable if that happens, a spillover. Spillover in terms of uh, potentially displacement of people, which frankly, uh, we are not in a position to entertain uh, at this time, unlike the past. Uh, spillover in terms of if people come, uh, there will be wrong, undesirable kind of people who come. The entire Pakistani Taliban sits in Afghanistan across the border from us. Uh, they will find opportunity. Uh, to, to, uh, to, you know, uh, target Pakistan even more so than, than they have been. Uh, we fought very hard for the counterterrorism gains in Pakistan. You've seen it yourself, uh, where things were 10 years ago and where we are now. Uh, we don't want to lose them under any circumstances. But most importantly, protracted conflict in Afghanistan undermines Pakistan's transformed vision for itself which is a paradigm focused on geoeconomics, which is a paradigm that puts at its core regional connectivity and regional peace. Now you tell me, if Pakistan wants regional connectivity, uh, we have a north-south corridor with China. How do we create a westward corridor from Central Asia? The republics are desperate to have access to Pakistani seas unless Afghanistan is peaceful. How do we talk about regional peace? unless Afghanistan is peaceful. How can we tell the investors of the world who are interested in Pakistan that there is a place that's very unstable next to us, but don't worry, that doesn't affect the region. That's not possible. So for us, peace is absolutely non-negotiable. For some others who are far away, maybe it's a priority. I know for the US it's non-negotiable, but you know, uh, others may not hurt in the way that Pakistan will. We can't even entertain the question of what happens when there is protracted conflict. All our energies are going into and must go into with the US and Pakistan visibly partnering on how to get to a uh, political settlement, how to get to what the Troika Plus or the statement that you've mentioned um, is talking about. A compromise is inevitable. It is not possible for either side uh, in, uh, to get what they want on the battlefield. There are many other uh, Afghan political actors who have to have a say, but it's Afghans who must decide their future in a room so that we avoid this protracted conflict. 
Um, so you say peace is non-negotiable, and I think uh, probably many people here in Washington would agree uh, that peace is, uh, is very important. Uh, but I suppose the question is how this peace can be brought about. What are, what are the modalities uh, that are necessary? Does, does Pakistan have a view on that? Um, and especially given that it does seem at the moment uh, that the Taliban is very uh, bent on securing a military victory. And this raises the question, there have been assertions over the years that the Taliban have changed but it certainly begins to look like the Taliban is the same old Taliban that it has been um, over, the, over the course of decades and is now pursuing uh, what it perceives to be its, its military advantage. So is, is peace possible? And if, and if it is, uh, does Pakistan have uh, a, a way, a modality, a plan for getting there? My instinct whenever I'm asked this question is go back to my um, scholarly life and quote my own books to tell you why it must be possible, um, even if the probability may seem low. But I'll resist um, uh, that temptation and say this much, Rick. I don't think it's important at this point to discuss how much who has changed, how much who will compromise. Will the Afghan government uh, do what, what is needed? Would, would the Taliban, would, uh, would other, other political actors in Afghanistan or in the region? Or, I think we have to test the proposition. I mean, at this point, if we were to go on assumptions that lead us to decide there's no point having a political conversation or, well, it's actually not going to work out, I'll tell you what's going to happen. And this is, I think, something that need to be, needs to be appreciated more. For Afghans on the ground, but more so, uh, for, equally so for Pakistan. 1989, 1991, 92, and the rest of the 90s are like yesterday. Unless people on the ground are convinced that under US leadership, political leadership, there is an emphasis, a reinvigorated emphasis on seeing the political process through to its logical conclusion, I'm afraid people may think that they have to fend for themselves because that's the history. I'm not saying that's correct. I know that we are still invested. I know Pakistan and US, we, I know for a fact, have agreed to work together and, and move forward. But the messaging on the ground has to be totally clear that we will go to any extent needed in terms of trying to uh, patch this conversation up among Afghans to take it to its logical conclusion, which is end violence, no forceful takeover, compromise, and, and find a way forward. So, you know, there are tons of assumptions here. I just don't think we have time for that. Let's focus all our energies to get to this political dialogue with empowered people sitting in the room who can take decisions for all sides, uh, respectively, and, and move forward. Um, last, last question, Mohit, on Afghanistan. Wow, that's easy. Good. <laughs> well, maybe we'll come back. <laughs> sure we will. What, when you talk about U.S. leadership, what would, what would Pakistan want to see? What would be evidence of U.S. leadership? What is needed in, in the current moments uh, that perhaps is not being done? First of all, uh, I, I want to be clear again. The U.S. is engaged, is committed to being engaged, and I think it's unfair when sometimes in our region, 
the narrative uh, is different. But uh, we have to work more to make this clear that we are both on the same side and, and, and working on this. Um, I will say sometimes the noise around, um, the public noise around, I've been very amused having seen uh, me quoted during this trip of things that are not remotely um, implied, but that noise then gives a different impression sometimes. But the reality is that we're working together. We are looking towards how to bring this uh, in one place. The methodology can be different, uh, but the signal of a strategic political leadership of the U.S. remaining, the U.S. has to lead this, otherwise this will not, I don't think this will go where we want it to. Of course, the U.S. has to be in the room, and Pakistan will continue to facilitate this conversation as much as we can to get to the outcomes that Troika Plus and everybody else um, has put out. So uh, I think, I mean, I'm, not, I'm nobody to say what, what the U.S. should do. I think Pakistan and the U.S. must be seen publicly to be pushing as uh, hard as we can on the same side. Now, there's always this conversation about, oh, what can you do and what can I do? I think that's also the time has passed for that. What we need is to know that here is where we want to go. Here are the parameters acceptable to everybody. As we've discussed, everybody will compromise. The Afghan context will dominate. Uh, rights have to be protected in an Afghan context. They have to agree on the constitution, no forceful takeover, everything, right? As long as we can get all actors to agree to those parameters, then it's up to them, them to sit together and figure out what a future they, they want for their country. Whatever methodology anybody thinks uh, is useful for that, that should be applied. But Rick, the important point is, we have days, we can't afford weeks and months. So this has to move as far, fast as we can because the situation, as we know, is very fluid and we shouldn't wait to see uh, where, where that goes. Um, the final thing on this I will say, we have been very disappointed as a country, extremely disappointed at what the kind of rhetoric and attitude that has been coming out of Kabul towards Pakistan. No other country has done more. Uh, and people in Pakistan feel um, very disappointed or disturbed when this happens. I don't want to, I mean, you know more than me what's been coming. Everybody has to work together at this time. It is not right to take a position where the policy seems to be to use Pakistan as a scapegoat and transfer all blame on Pakistan. Everybody's made mistakes, right? But Pakistan has actually suffered for a war that was not of our making. So uh, I would just encourage everybody to be civil about this and let's figure out how to work together. We are still telling the Afghan government we want to help. We've offered an upgraded trade and transit agreement. Um, you know, talking about virtually everything that can get this through. No other country can support Afghanistan's economy like Pakistan just because of geography. We can extend our connectivity. We've even said we should think about co-investment between Pakistan, Afghanistan, US, China, others for Afghanistan's sake. The ROZ legislation I know is again sort of, uh, you know, being tabled. We can set up manufacturing units in Pakistan where Afghan raw materials can be processed. 
giving Afghanistan a lot of foreign exchange. Keep in mind, we're talking of the politics where nobody's really talked about an, about an economic plan yet. So we are very much there. But I personally am very disappointed. Uh, at, it, it shrinks our space to work positively on this issue when this kind of vitriol rhetoric is heard all the time. Um, okay, I'm going to renege on my promise and ask one last question on uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and um, what, what, does, what does Pakistan bring to the table? Uh, does Pakistan have leverage over the Taliban, and can it bring the Taliban to the table? Less and less. When the troops withdraw, the leverage decreases. When the Taliban make gains on the battlefield, logically the leverage decreases, right? Um, everybody in the region, including the US, uh, is involved in talking to them directly. Pakistan has never insisted and will not insist. In fact, it's very good for Pakistan if others feel they have the leverage to get to the end point. Our only goal is the end point, which is uh, end of violence and inclusive political settlement based on necessary compromise at this point uh, and moving forward from there. So others can do it. That's absolutely great. Whatever little we can do, we will keep pushing. But frankly, it's not much at this point uh, because it's periodically decreased. It wasn't much to begin with. But I know others have a lot of good contacts, uh, including the US, through the Doha process and otherwise. So everybody should use their leverage on the Taliban, also on the Afghan government, also on everybody else who has to sit in the room to make sure that we get where we want to get. Okay. Uh, would like to shift now to uh, geoeconomics. Uh, my understanding is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that Pakistan's uh, policy shift announced uh, this year uh, is to shift from a traditional geopolitical strategy to a geoeconomic strategy, which if I understand it is leveraging Pakistan's geographic position for economic benefit as opposed to purely security uh, questions. But I suppose um, the first question will be in that regard. Uh, doesn't, uh, don't outfits like the Pakistan Taliban get a vote uh, in this equation? Uh, is there going to be a, a persistent security concern uh, about the TTP that would make the implementation of geoeconomics difficult? Yes. Uh, I think, look, any security concern will make the implementation of geoeconomics uh, uh, suboptimal. There are three strands to Pakistan's geoeconomic strategy. And uh, by the way, I, I will mention um, these are words, and you know we say these in passing. Um, this is a clear signal from the Pakistani government and state on where Pakistan wants to go. Mm -hmm. This is the conversation we used to have in this town for years and years. Yeah. And here it is, um, you know, situated at the core is economic security. There's tons of conversation in this town over the years, um, civil, military, whatever. You've heard from every single person in one voice, this is where Pakistan wants to go. It's major. Um, regional connectivity. We've talked about Afghanistan. How do we get an optimal regional connectivity? Um, till uh, we have a corridor of stability, uh, or stability in Afghanistan that offers us a corridor of connectivity. Um, the East, unfortunately, is a very um, sad tale of an acrimonious relationship that's gone on. And I will tell you, Rick, um, I'll challenge you to tell me what else do you think Pakistan should do to signal um, that we want to live like civilized neighbors with India, we want to move forward. I have to tell you, I've been personally invested and involved um, 
the ideology that is being espoused in New Delhi right now that I'm not saying, the world is saying and writing about, uh, unfortunately is leaving no space uh, for us to, to move, move forward on that. I will also take this opportunity to just say that when we talk about Afghanistan and instability and TTP and other groups, we must also not ignore state actors deliberately perpetrating terrorism and instability inside Pakistan. I'll leave it at that. So connectivity. Second piece, development partnerships. You want to get investors, you want to get corporate America, corporate China, everybody. Uh, how do you do that if there is instability or security concerns, right? And then regional peace underpins all of this and peace within Pakistan. So you're absolutely right. And that takes me back to where I started. Peace in Afghanistan is absolutely non-negotiable. If we have a spillover effect in Pakistan, it hurts our vision. And the vision is everything where, you know, in terms of where a country wants to go. So yes, and that is why uh, we are working very hard on making sure that you know, no spillover happens from Pakistan. Already there's been an uptake of, of terrorist violence in some of the uh, border areas, all linked, frankly, to a third country. Um, and that's a problem. Uh, and I, I implore people who study this to see why um, India is behaving the way it's behaving. But again, I leave it at that. You are absolutely right. We cannot afford instability, and that's why we are obsessed, frankly, no less, with helping everybody find a settlement in Afghanistan. Uh, in shifting the conversation uh, with the United States and, and others uh, to being about economics rather than about uh, uh, geostrategy, uh, one, of the, one of the questions that naturally arises is how does Pakistan, what steps does Pakistan take to encourage investment, to encourage exports, economic reforms, and bear in mind you're the national security advisor, not the national economic advisor, but uh, can you give us a sense of what the reform program is that Pakistan has in mind to encourage investment and encourage a conversation about uh, geoeconomics? Trust me, my boss asks me more questions about economic security than anything else, because that's really where, where the focus is. And traditional security as it's linked to economic security, mm -hmm. your earlier question. Look, Rick, I mean, I'm not here to tell you that Pakistan is a uh, has been a heaven for investors or anything like that. All developing countries have challenges, uh, bureaucratic challenges, red tape. Pakistan has had its fair share. What I can tell you is that this is at the top of the mind of the Pakistani leadership on how we create a more friendly business environment. Now, I think Pakistan is the second or third highest gainer in terms of rankings on ease of doing business. In, uh, I think, 2020 report hasn't come out, but 2019, we will improve further in 2020. This is the, the rankings, the global rankings. Um, we have drastically cut down on regulations. The um, comparison we do for ourselves with the region, we are now definitely more liberal in terms of how um, the investors and the trade uh, sort of uh, concessions look. We are one of the very few countries that have, that have recorded uh, net positive growth during COVID. You know how badly the region has been affected. And now the international rating agencies are, are clearly saying, despite COVID, that Pakistan's moving in the right direction. Um, record uh, forex and remittances and whatever. So we do feel confident that we are in a space where 
uh, more investment and more uh, Pakistan will be lucrative for this fifth largest market in the world and you know this better than me that those American companies and multinationals who work in Pakistan make astronomically higher profits than their global profits you know you name it Coca-Cola and I'll give you an example yesterday somewhere um, uh, one of the former heads of Coca-Cola in the region was at a dinner with me who said 22% profit which is, is uh, out of the park and so yes challenges we are working on those very 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 diligently but the uh, the profits return on equity in Pakistan I think is higher than ever before and much higher than the uh, comparable destinations for, for corporate America. The issue, Rick, uh, when it comes to the US is twofold. One, it's the narrative on Pakistan. And there I'd frankly implore you and, and, and uh, request you as USIP uh, and others in town. I'm not asking you to have a positive conversation on Pakistan. I'm not asking you to ignore uh, whatever challenges you think there are. I'm not asking you to agree on everything I see on Afghanistan. But I do think that such an important country, that the US says is such a critical country, with a 70-year history of a partnership, does have a conversation in this town about 220 million people, about the fastest growing digitization space, um, about a consumer market, about a re-export potential. Where are those seminars? Where are those conversations? Let's start having a Pakistan studies program and a conversation that that program would have rather than just talk about Pakistan in the tourism space or, or whatever that may be. And second is a technical issue. We are working with our US counterparts and inshallah we'll, we'll uh, sort of get uh, where we need to is a um, sort of lingering travel advisory, which you know increases insurance premiums and uh, dissuades uh, U.S. companies from going. But, but as I said, we're working on that. Um, thanks for that. Uh, you've alluded a couple of times to your uh, relationship with India, um, and I wanted to um, ask you a bit more about uh, about that. Uh, Obviously, uh, the relationship uh, from Pakistan's perspective is, is very difficult, but there did seem to be some moments of hope uh, earlier this year. There was uh, a ceasefire uh, yeah. along the line of control, which is, which is quite significant. Um, and there are persistent rumors of perhaps a back-channel negotiation between uh, Islamabad and Delhi. Um, is there any, any prospect for movement on the India-Pakistan relationship? There's every prospect of movement, uh, and Pakistan does, um, in all earnest, uh, want to live like a civilized neighbor. If I'm talking geoeconomics, how can you have your eastern border closed in terms of connectivity? South Asia is the least integrated region in the world. You know that. Mm -hmm. um, there is every prospect of moving forward if India is serious, is willing to create the enabling environment, and that requires it to reverse what it's done in Kashmir, because for Pakistan, uh, the issue of the disputed territory cannot be wished away or uh, you know, relegated to secondary importance. These are human beings who we're talking about. And I have to tell you, if this were happening anywhere else in the world where uh, interests of other countries aligned better, you would have heard every single day of what is happening in the occupied territories. We are not hearing that. 
and that is unfair to the humans called Kashmiris. Forget about the territorial uh, part of this, right? So I think more needs to happen there just on humanitarian grounds. The situation is horrible, has been horrible. But we, uh, as the Pakistani Prime Minister has said, you take one step, we'll take two steps. That's why we uh, uh, agreed to have contact. We did have contact, and I have to tell you, um, let me just say this. If India is sincere, Pakistan is ready. We don't see the signs. I, I'd like to shift this a little bit to talk about um, the relationship as it involves uh, China. Of course, mm -hmm. China and India have had border clashes ongoing, sometimes, sometimes quite heated. Um, how do you see the new dynamics in the region uh, affecting uh, the, the possibility for escalation as Pakistan um, strengthens and deepens its relationship with China, uh, India strengthens and deepens its relationship with the United States. Uh, do you see uh, a greater possibility of a polarization in strategic terms in the region? That's not Pakistan's goal. That's not Pakistan's interest. Pakistan is actually opposed to that. Again, if I talk geoeconomics, we are the geography that can be the melting pot for positive global economic interests in the region. We are the country that created the opening for the US in 1970. Yeah. We are still the country that has very good ties with the US and China uh, and the EU and others. Uh, the Muslim world, of course, included in this. Um, I don't think there's any other country that can speak in such a friendly manner to all other Muslim uh, countries uh, in the world. What we have been saying again and again is, why even talk about camp politics and which camp? Pakistan is looking for good development partnerships with the entire world. Uh, Nobody has asked us, um, you know, to, um, uh, in, in China to uh, not work with the U.S. We are a sovereign country. We want to work with everybody. There should be no signals um, that, that could give people a second thought on whether the U.S. is really interested in uh, working with Pakistan in, in such a positive manner. Again, as I said, very good conversations. I think it's as far from the truth. There is commitment on both sides. But the public narratives uh, sometimes do, uh, do impinge on this. Uh, to be clear, our relationship with China will go from strength to strength. We are strategically aligned in terms of the geography. CPEC is purely an economic initiative. But it has brought billions of dollars into Pakistan for energy, for infrastructure. There's, it's a no-brainer that we will continue to build that relationship. We want our relationship with the US to continue uh, going to new heights as well, right? That's the way we are approaching this. That's where we want to go with this. Now, um, I will say one thing. A lot of times the conversation is about Pakistan and China, India and the US. What is the dollar figure of trade between India and China today? I don't know. 80 to 100 billion dollars. Where is Pakistan and China? One fourth. 
somewhere there. So is this a logical conversation? We are, uh, we hear that the US Indo-Pacific and all of that, great sovereign decision you do that, as long as it's not targeted at Pakistan. The important thing to keep in mind, Rick, is that no action by anybody should embolden a country to create further instability in the region. That, I think, is the important point to note. Why do some concerns come up, if I were to be honest? Again, a sovereign US decision, uh, how to operate with India, we are not in a zero-sum game. Absolutely not. Military sales, technology, building up India, perhaps as a counterweight to China, whatever it may be. Blocking technology to Pakistan, blocking platforms to Pakistan, even non-US technology to Pakistan. Whatever the reason may be, but then the minds in Pakistan ask this question of people like me, who are sometimes, um, you know, uh, seen to be too soft uh, on the question of the US. Um, is this for real? You are telling us it's such an important relationship. This is what we are reading and seeing. So again, I repeat, we've had very good conversations. I have no doubt about the commitment on both sides. We are moving forward. But these things do come up, so I should mention it, that there should be nothing that anybody can pick up in Pakistan and say, is the US really asking us to go into uh, further towards China? Is it not interested? That's not the reality, but the optics. Today is a day when you know, one cannot forget. Uh, it coincidentally happens to be the 5th of August, two years from India's uh, unilateral and uh, blatantly illegal actions in, in Kashmir. Now, what are we saying for regional stability and, and, um, and moving forward? What we are saying is there is international law. Just follow that. There's international humanitarian law. There is human rights paradigms. There's the UNSC resolutions. Just follow that. Pakistan and India have bilateral agreements, the Shimla Accord, through which we have to solve all problems bilaterally. Just follow that. And we will get to a solution according to the rules and norms of international law. What we are picking up is everything 180 degrees diametrically opposed and largely silenced from the world. That's what bothers us, and you know, today happens to be the day, so I must mention it's been two years. And all we are saying for now, have the humanitarian conversation first at least. Let's get lives back to normal, solve the problem as per UNSC and other resolutions. Uh, one, of, one of the concerns, of course, um, about India and Pakistan is that there have been periodic crises along the line of control, and the ceasefire has... Uh, uh, I mentioned is, is most welcome in that regard. Um, but in the uh, crises in the recent past, Polwama, Balakot, there was, uh, seemed an escalatory cycle that uh, was in danger of getting out of control. Uh, in the past, the United States has uh, tried to play a, a helpful role uh, in that regard. I've done that myself in a previous life. Um, is that role changing? Uh, is there an expectation that China will play more of a role in de-escalating crises? Is China interested in uh, de-escalating crises? Does it, have, does it have the credibility on both sides? And 
is the U.S. being replaced in that regard? You know that my last book was on India-Pakistan crisis and looking at third-party mm -hmm. intervention. Uh, I have to say, thankfully, I haven't uh, thought about my book at all since I uh, left. But as a policy person now, I think that's not the conversation I'm entertaining, as a scholar maybe. As a policymaker, the conversation I am more interested in is what are the factors, the variables, and the developments that may make a crisis more likely? I want to prevent. I don't want to manage, right? Yes, of course, we have to you know, have those protocols and whatever that may be. Emboldening of one of the parties to the conflict or acrimony or whatever, when it has shown that it is willing to cross over an international border of a nuclear power to satisfy whatever domestic, domestic political concerns or pressures it may have, when it got the response that it deserved and still managed to turn that around into a domestic political conversation of uh, we've taught Pakistan a lesson or whatever, where should you point? to the country that is saying geoeconomics, connectivity, move forward, solve disputed um, uh, disputes uh, between us. That is the one who initiated the conversation about the LOC uh, understanding. I have to be clear about this. For months, Pakistan was saying it. And when India said, we're ready, we said, absolutely, we don't want to kill innocent people. Nobody should. But innocent people were dying because of Indian shelling and everything else. Um, there's only one capital this conversation needs to happen, because if that capital is ready to behave as neighbors should and find a way forward, we won't have to manage any crisis. At this point, frankly, uh, there is, unless you tell me, I don't know what a conversation with Pakistan looks like, because we are saying everything that we are saying, and we have absolutely no interest in uh, crises in the region, because that, that hurts our, our vision. Last point, I have to go back to this. You can't just expect that somebody continues to create instability in my country and we just keep looking the other way. These are the things that need to be discussed with another capital, not us. And hopefully, if better sense prevails, we won't have to talk about management. Uh, final question, um, and then we're going to turn to the audience. So I encourage uh, our members of the audience to send in questions through our website. Um, it, you spoke about the, the humanitarian situation uh, in Kashmir. Um, and Pakistan has been um, quite uh, prominent in uh, calling for uh, the rights of the Kashmiri people. But the position of Pakistan, in contrast with regard to the Uyghurs, uh, fellow Muslims in uh, China, does not seem to uh, attract uh, the same attention. I wonder if you can explain the difference between how Pakistan views the situation with regard to the Kashmiris and with regard to the Uyghurs. I think, first of all, the, the comparison is misfounded. In case of Kashmir, I'm talking about my territory, which is disputed, internationally recognized, and I'm talking about people who I, as Pakistan, know do not want to be in the situation that they're in, and they want to be with somebody else. I mean, you have to have a plebiscite to decide that. That's what we've been asking for. So I think there's no comparison. It's like talking about somebody in Texas and somebody somewhere else, right? Uh, we 
are nobody as a country to interfere in another country's affairs. That said, I will tell you very clearly, uh, we have a relationship with China which is so transparent that we can have every single conversation we want and generate confidence in uh, the responses that we give to each other. Every conversation we want happens uh, in, in private as we want it. China is totally transparent with us. Uh, we have even uh, visited the region and we do not share the Western depiction of this conversation. That said, I think rather than asking this question to me, frankly, everybody has access at the state level to have these conversations directly if that is of interest. For Pakistan, Kashmir is our issue. And I think it's very unfair to, to compare it with, with uh, you know, anywhere else, frankly, uh, not only that. But as I told you, our relationship is so confident, so transparent, that we can have any and every conversation we want and get comfort out of that. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's turn to questions from the audience. So your uh, recent interview in the Financial Times touches on a lack of a phone call between President Biden and Prime Minister Khan. Do you feel that the mistrust between Pakistan and the Biden administration is so high that President Biden is not willing to engage with PM Khan? I'm so glad this question has come up. Um, sometimes I don't understand how media operates. You read your own interview and then you say, really? Look, we are talking substance, Rick. I'm not here to discuss you know, form and optics. Those come with substance, right? Mm -hmm. If President Biden makes a call to the Pakistani Prime Minister, we'll welcome it. If for whatever reason there is a decision or an inability or a schedule which doesn't allow it, that's fine. We are moving on substance. I'm here talking. If there was distrust, if there was some signal, would I be here? I think a non-issue has been made into such a big issue. Interestingly, the same Mohid Yusuf interviewed by the same US media. Look at what Bloomberg has reported. Look at what AFP has reported and whatever, right? The, the point is very simple. We should focus on substance. This noise will continue. And there are reasons for this noise. And I've told you this. Some in Pakistan question, I mean, is this for real? Is it going where you know, the, we are saying it's going? So the more visible the progress is, the better it is. But it should be based on reality. It should be based on whatever we are doing. This, I think, you know, somebody scored points. Good luck. It's not a conversation. We're not bothered. Whenever we want to talk, we talk. Simple as that. So it's a non-issue from your perspective. You tell me. When you talk substance, right, why would, you know, why would this conversation even come up, frankly? Right? Whenever, we welcome it. Whenever not, if the substance wasn't working, I would be saying something very different because the substance is working so well. I know it is not a question of any mistrust or any signal or anything like that. Let's leave this aside. This noise is not good for the relationship. We need to move forward. That's it, and we are moving forward. Okay, speaking of media noise, we have a question on media freedom. During the past three years, Pakistan has witnessed a dangerous clampdown on freedom of expression and media. While Pakistan claims to have pivoted away from security concerns, the state has justified silencing journalists based on security. 
how would you reconcile this, and what threat do you see journalists as posing to Pakistan's security? Sorry, I'm reading it because it's easier that way. Um, Pakistan has had an issue in terms of security of journalists in the past because of the insecurity in some regions of Pakistan. When we were going through that counterterrorism um, campaign, you know, I mean, we have 80,000 direct effectees, $150 billion lost. And in that period, yes, I mean, our, our children were being blown up, right? Um, Pakistanis were being martyred every single day. And so, yes, it wasn't uh, a completely safe environment, no question about it. Since then, uh, nobody can say that Pakistan is in the position it was and it is now. Now, I would just urge everybody to make sure we don't jump to conclusions about any lack of freedom or action uh, on, on, on any count when you see the first tweet about something. Pakistan is a country that uh, has struggled in the West, unfortunately, and I would say very unfairly, in the narrative domain. So it sticks. You say something and, you know, and somebody else says something negative about Pakistan, it, it sticks. You know, there's almost an urge, I find, sometimes, because the negativity makes a story. Every single incident that comes up, we investigate, and whatever needs to be done, if there is a problem, it is resolved. What I will tell you, Rick, is that this government has invested more time in human rights writ, writ large and freedom. Even though I know the narrative is different when, when it's heard in the West, we are really committed to this. I hope you won't expect somebody like me sitting where I'm sitting uh, and condoning anything less. So, so that is happening. Anything that comes up, we do actually very seriously uh, look at it. But <laughs> being in the position I'm in, uh, friends were telling me just before this event, that every time I read something about you in the news, I think about whether Mohit would have said this or it's been quoted out of context. Pakistani media is, you know, we have 100 TV channels, newspapers. Um, they don't spare us, let me just say this much, uh, me included. And that's good. We need to have critique, we need to have uh, conversations. That's how states improve. And I, Personally, of course, but the state is very much open to that. Well, there is, of course, a robust media environment in Pakistan, but there have been these allegations of uh, uh, disappearances and um, uh, journalists being called in for, uh, for interviews, in some cases having disappeared temporarily or, unfortunately, in some cases uh, permanently. So it does, it does seem to the outside that, uh, that uh, despite some serious progress in some human rights areas, including the banning of torture, uh, which was recently passed through the, uh, uh, the legislature, um, that there has been a deterioration of the space for civil society and freedom of expression. I wouldn't agree with that at all. Uh, I wouldn't agree that there's been deterioration in any way. I mean, I've been part of the civil society for so long, worked there. Uh, ran a uh, U.S. Um, um, uh, organization uh, in Pakistan. Uh, there are challenges. There's no question about it, as there are in uh, any other country. Frankly, if you look at the civil society space uh, in the region, the trend is going in the opposite direction. I mean, look at India, look at uh, other countries. Pakistan is not at all uh, signed up to that. Uh, let me just say this much. We have zero tolerance 
for any incidents that bring bad name to Pakistan. And media freedom is probably top of the list because it's the media, right? Um, you've seen in Pakistan, Rick, the media cover and talk about uh, Pakistani officials in a way that I promise you will not be tolerated for one second in this country. Just go back and look at what the media has said about Pakistan's national security advisor, Pakistan's army chief, Pakistan's prime minister, everybody. There's not what response have been given. And I can tell you about myself, I don't know about others. Each one of them is untrue. And if you don't know that, then I don't know who knows it, right? But uh, it is not true that we, we clamp down. If there are incidents, if there are any weaknesses, we are working on that because each story gives us a bad name, and we don't want that. Next question, uh, and I'm going to still read it so that our audience knows sure. what we're talking about. Uh, the horrendous case of Nur Mukaddam's murder in Islamabad has raised the issue of violence uh, against women in Pakistan. Most female victims do not enjoy the same level of attention, nor do they receive justice. The serious threat to women across Pakistan, a lack of recourse to justice, is an internal security threat. How does Pakistan plan to address this as a societal and structural problem? Number one, it is not an internal security threat, it's a national security threat. That is why even in our new national security policy, uh, which is you know, part of what I have to look after, uh, gender insecurity is a key pillar. Uh, no modern country can progress without empowering women. It's as simple as that. Uh, in terms of employability, in terms of space, in terms of safe space, if we want to go where we want to go, we have to do this. Um, sorry, you've taken away the question, if you don't mind. <laughs> I'm reminding myself of what I had to answer. Um, this case that has been mentioned has really shaken up the country. Yeah. Terrible case. Terrible case. But. Clearly, we know already uh, it's an individual, um, a state of mind, uh, which is, of course, not representative anywhere of, of any other. Uh, but really, it's, I, I, can't, I can't explain it. The difference, Rick, is we are under this government very openly, not only passing legislation, not only bringing in rules, but talking about any problem we have. And if there is any concern, the worst way to address it is shove it under the rug, right? We're having open conversations. That's why legislation is there. That's why the rules are there. They're being implemented. I would tell you honestly, more is being done in terms of women empowerment under this government than ever before. It may not make the news because that's the positive story, but it's happening. And we're very much committed to this because as I said, without further empowering women, we now have, as you know, parliamentary quotas. Uh, we have very senior officials. The public space is now actually rife with very, very um, sort of capable um, uh, colleagues. Uh, and we need to do more, and we will continue to do more. Okay, next question concerns Al-Qaeda and Daesh. How much of a threat are Al-Qaeda and Islamic State Khorasan? to regional stability right now? How does Pakistan see the threat evolving? To what extent uh, have they spread beyond Afghanistan? I really don't know. Uh, I don't have the up-to-date information on where they are. You know, you know what I know. Uh, I didn't sort of check up on this before I came, frankly. 
what I will tell you is, this is where, if Pakistan and US are not seen committed to being on the same side, this disease will raise its head again for the region and beyond. Look, Rick, I mean, let me make a slightly controversial point. History will judge us whether we all collectively as the international community made the same mistakes we promised we would never make, uh, the mistakes of the 1990s, or have we really moved away? Pakistan's insistence is we must, must move away completely. So anything that harkens back to that is bad. You create a security vacuum, you can call it Al-Qaeda or ABC, there will be these actors that will find space. Pakistan cannot afford it. Maybe some think that countries far away can afford it. We've just gone through 20 years um, knowing that we don't want to go there. So if anybody is thinking about this, that you know, this is now going to be only the region's problem, that's, you know, that, I, I just don't know how somebody can say that, frankly. And so it is critical that we have a clear framework uh, to make sure that shared threats do not arise. Pakistan's already made clear that it will only do what it can and what it says. Um, and wherever that sweet spot of mutual threat analysis is, um, you know, Pakistan, US, and others should work on that. Otherwise, uh, frankly, this problem will remain. Let me also say, uh, I heard from somebody <laughs> that I had said that if it's not the US and Pakistan, Pakistan has other options. Let me be categorical. Neither Pakistan nor the US have a better option. We have to work together to make sure that the history of the 90s in Afghanistan is not repeated because what came at the end of that, nobody in the right mind wants to consider. Next question is about the uh, Financial Action Task Force. Uh, please discuss any concrete measures that Pakistan has taken uh, to address the FATF uh, concerns. Uh, and, and more broadly, I would add, where, where do you see the FATF process going? This would take about an hour to respond to. That's how much Pakistan has done. But I don't want to go into the details. Let me just put it this way. We got the most onerous uh, action plan, country plan. Uh, every country has weaknesses in financial systems. We needed to improve, and we are improving. FATF's own report tells us that we have completed 26 out of the 27 uh, agenda items that were provided to us. And then there's another process in which I think there were 70 odd and we've got to, you know, all but maybe three or four or whatever. So progress has been intense. It's a whole of government effort not to satisfy anybody else, but because our own investment financial landscape suffers, right? Um, the problem has been explained better than I could by the Indian External Affairs Minister last month, where he said triumphantly that India has ensured that Pakistan remains in the FATF so-called gray list. I'm paraphrasing. These were not his words. It's a technical forum where serious, powerful countries sit and evaluate countries to make sure their finance, financial systems are not being misused for terrorism. We have approached it as a technical forum. And here is another country indicting all the FATF members by saying we've influenced it politically. 
Where does this leave the conversation? We have constantly said, tell us where we are deficient and we'll work on that. And FATF's own regulatory system or whatever, the, the charter, whatever you call it, says that if a country has achieved all or nearly all, there is no justification for it. So if 26 out of 27 is not nearly all, I'm not sure what the definition of nearly is. The point is, Rick, for our own sake, in our national interest, just like our Afghanistan policy and the conversation is purely in Pakistan's selfish national interest, in our selfish national interest, we have done more than any country would have done in this short period of time. Now we find countries who are weaker in their protocols, financial protocols, are in the so-called white list, and we are still in the gray list. And the conversation now seems to be about terrorism and other things, not financing of terrorism. We find it unfair. I think technically we've completed and done everything. And so it's an ongoing process. We will keep improving. But there, you know, nobody has been able to tell us why on technical grounds Pakistan should still be where it is. And I think, uh, you know, um, as I said, the Indian official has made it absolutely clear why this may be the case. We don't say that. We are still saying it's a technical forum. It shouldn't be influenced. He seems to suggest that he's successfully influenced. Uh, it's very sad if that's true. I'm afraid, uh, unfortunately, Moeed, we are out of time. Uh, so once again, welcome back to USIP. It's a pleasure to talk to you on uh, the center stage here. And uh, do come visit us again. Thank you very much. Let me end by, if you allow me, uh, Please. reiterating. Um, if anybody has any concerns or second thoughts about the positivity in the Pakistan-US relationship, remove that. Uh, this trip has been good. I want to thank everybody who has received me, including USIP. Uh, we have a plan. We are moving forward. We are on the same side. Um, that said, my last uh, word would be, whatever's happened in Afghanistan, we're in a difficult situation, all of us. This is not the time to look around and see where to shift the blame. We could go on and on. But we do sense, not here, but elsewhere, that Pakistan is being used as a scapegoat. That's not healthy for anybody. Uh, you know this more than me, how closely Pakistan, US, and others have worked on this issue. You know how much Pakistan has lost. And it, it really then makes a positive conversation very difficult back home when we hear this. And then people start talking about, is the US serious? Got nothing to do with the US, but that conversation happens. So let's remain positive again. A very, very good trip, but the best part of that trip has been that I've come back to USIP. I'm sitting in the chair opposite to what I'm used to. Uh, thank you very much for receiving me, Lise and, and Andrew. Um, and anything we can do for you back home, you're always available. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.